urban forced displacement is misunderstood and underprioritized, according to some presenters on a panel at the 2018 Pacific Update. The session described some outcomes of partnerships between aid actors, governments and the private sector, particularly how these partnerships resulted in certain outcomes for urban communities in the Pacific, as well as looking at the role of ethnic Fijian women in disaster management planning at the community level. All right, well, welcome um, to uh, Partnerships in Disaster Preparedness, Emergency and Recovery. I'm uh, Jenny Day, and uh, we're a special session. Um, and when we organized the special session, we had uh, great hopes of having um, two uh, shelter cluster uh, folks from International Red Cross Societies join us, Robbie Dobbs, uh, uh, Dodds and Tom Bamforth, but unfortunately, they are unable to attend uh, today, um, and they were going to be talking about um, some Pacific uh, fact sheets, uh, tenure fact sheets uh, that they were that the um, Red Cross has been preparing um, to guide humanitarian response in the Pacific. Um, so instead, um, uh, uh, we'll we'll ca we'll carry on with two of the other planned presentations. Um, one is uh, by myself and Margarita Vavrinki Singh, who's a human rights lawyer based at USP in Vanuatu at the Amalis campus. Uh, and the other is uh, Mohamed Zaire, who's um, also my former student, but currently a, a, a minister of um, uh, working in the Ministry of Local Government, Housing and Environment um, as a... Um, Town planning officer, uh, I always. Um, so, uh, and then if the, the room is amenable, what I thought I would do is spend a little bit of time because we have the third presentation slot available to talk about um, a, an academic research initiative uh, network that I've been heading called the Academic Practitioner Collaboration for Urban Shelter. Um, so um, I think what we'll do is uh, uh, do presentation and then uh, for each one take some question and answer about 10 minutes and then at the end we'll have a, a larger question and answer session. So I don't think either Mohammed or I plan to take more than uh, about 20 minutes uh, or 15 minutes um, for the presentation mm -hmm. then short question and answer. Um, so our, our panel is on um, partnerships in uh, disaster planning, um, preparedness, emergency, and recovery um, in the Pacific. And I am, my talk will focus specifically on um, displacement in Pacific cities uh, and whether or not we need uh, more guidance. Um, some of the guidance we have uh, comes from uh, two, two documents. The first is the Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement, which was released by um, UN OCHA in 1998, and so we've we've come to a 20-year period of implementation of the guiding principles, um, uh, particularly uh, governing or um, uh, seeking to guide the the um, relocation of people locate, relocated within countries, um, and much more recently, actually still in draft as of. Um, uh, as of now, um, is the draft national policy on climate change and disaster-induced displacement, um, which is a uh, 
the first uh, uh, policy of its kind in the Pacific, um, um, prepared by the government of Vanuatu, assisted by the International Organization for Migration. Um, this is a draft that's dated at the end of 2017 um, and is designed to um, provide guidance on uh, internal displacement inside of Vanuatu. Um, but the policy is also very interesting because it's one of only a handful of uh, national displacement policies around the world. Um, at the last count, I think six existed, um, and, and none in the Pacific. So not only is this uh, national policy on climate change and disaster-induced displacement positioned to um, guide Vanuatu's implementation of forced resettlement, but also um, is being discussed as a model for displacement policy elsewhere in the Pacific. Um, so Margarita, uh, my colleague Margarita Vevrinki Singh and I have conducted field work in Port Vila, uh, which is the capital city of Vanuatu, um, and also reviewed this policy. And our argument is that, uh, that displacement from within the capital city to other places within the capital city is really quite under uh, misunderstood and under-prioritized in this national policy. Um, we come at it from different perspectives. So Margarita is a human rights lawyer focusing on uh, migration and climate change. And um, I am an urban planner and uh, urban economist interested in the household welfare impacts of forced displacement in cities and have a, a body of work that goes back to around 2005 uh, in China, uh, where I've been looking at forced displacement there. Um, so geopolitically, it's very interesting because China is now having more and more influence in the Pacific, as many people know. Um, although I, I, I don't see any evidence uh, in this policy that there's been policy translation um, from the Chinese context. Um, but Margarita and I, in, in, in doing this analysis, really had to uh, rectify and, and come to an understanding about the key differences between a legal approach to forced displacement and a, um, an urbanist approach to forced displacement. Um, lawyers want as simple documents as possible that are in, as inclusive of as many people as possible. So um, at first she was very hesitant to talk about an urban-focused policy. Um, and the need for an urban-focused policy. Um, whereas I was probably more uh, biased toward thinking about a, a, a national policy that, that, um, that had particular attention to urban places. Um, but slowly we converged on, uh, through the, um, the data, through the experience of people we met in the field, we converged uh, on an, we agreed that, um, that the cities in Vanuatu are very poorly represented in this national policy on forced displacement. Um, oh, the um, the bottom of this slide is a little bit cut off, but I'll um, so I, I uh, this comes from a this quote comes from a you can't see it here um, comes from a a report um, uh, a scholarly publication um, by a scholar named uh, Stanley um, and. I think it really illustrates the bias that occurs in um, 
in most international guidance and national guidance on forced and internal displacement. And that is that there's this strong narrative that people who are urban displacees come from a rural area and their journey is from hamlet to city and they find themselves in cities and that's the profile of a person that's been displaced um, to a city. And uh, what, what I know um, uh, from my, my work in, in um, urban force displacement is that, uh, that it is very, very common for the, a, forced, a person who's forcibly displaced to originate in a city or uh, spend a lot of time in a city before um, being forcibly displaced. Um, so the, we're quite convinced that the, um, the people uh, facing, uh, living in cities and facing displacement, um, particularly around what is com called in uh, much of the literature as development-induced displacement. So things like infrastructure, um, need to move populations for infrastructure, dams, roads, power plants, um, also shopping malls and apartment buildings and, and um, things that uh, are questionably in the public interest um, is represents a very significant portion of the population that needs some attention in national policies like this one um, if they're going to be said to be inclusive of um, the entire population. So um, in 2017, I conducted 55 interviews of people living in Port Vila um, and uh, in other places in Vanuatu, but I uh, interviewed everybody in Port Vila. And I interviewed those people, all of them, uh, vast majority of them were people dislocated from a community called Destination which is, if anybody's spent any time in Port Vila, it, uh, it's uh, kind of on the way to the airport on the right-hand side. And you can, this is, a, this is a picture from November 2017, so you can see that it's, it's fenced off now. But at one point in 2014, between 2007 and 2014, this was a, a, a thriving urban community um, filled with people who thought that they were building a place um, where uh, their children would grow up, um, invested their life savings in strong houses, planted fruit trees, um, and talk about this community as uh, one of the greatest losses of their lives. Um, so um, this is Millie. Um, I've changed people's names, but um, essentially the, the, the community was a, a community of 300 people, 80 households. There was a, a the, there's a pretty unclear um, uh, so the, well, the community was evicted overnight on a, a Sunday evening. The people were um, notified that the next day uh, their homes would be bulldozed at 6 a.m. And that eviction was carried out overnight. So Millie was allowed to uh, remove her belongings to the road and uh, while caring for young children. And in the morning, her home was bulldozed um, in front of the children. Now this didn't just happen in a vacuum of information. There was a court uh, order for uh, an eviction that did um, that had been standing for several months, and uh, the the date October twentieth was the last day of the eviction order. Um, but Millie was unaware that this eviction was about to happen. 
so the the thing that's interesting about her experience is is and this is a something I heard over and again over again from women in uh, who had been moved from destination is that they were absolutely surprised that this eviction was coming. Um, even though there was a court order and there had been a long-standing legal proceeding, presumably with um, heads of the community, um, somehow that information did not get to her. And, um, and I have not been able to speak to the people in the community who were um, uh, in charge, uh, were interfacing with the legal process. So that's been a, a, a tricky thing to, to try to figure out. But um, it does, uh, the, the experience, Millie's experience really uh, tells me that there is a, there's been a communication breakdown between um, the, those that, uh, the, the courts and the police issuing the court order and uh, the, um, the, the community, the entirety of the community. There may have been some notification, but not of everyone. Um, Mary, um, Mary's experience uh, from destination is a bit different. So she also was uh, involved in the overnight eviction, but was aware that it was about to happen. And she and her family chose to relocate to unserviced land outside the uh, city limits in para-urban um, land, but with formal tenure. Um, so Mary's life has, has changed in a bit of a different way, whereas Millie uh, still lives close by and uh, has spent time with different relatives and doesn't have a fixed uh, place to live at the moment. Mary's experience has been with her family that, that she's decided to take up a, a um, the, the, the lands minister at the time, Ralph Reagan Vanu, uh, offer, uh, arranged um, a leased land far outside the city. But this uh, space has, this land has um, very limited access to water. Um, gardening is very difficult. Um, so for many of you know, Vanuatu has a um, uh, high, high uh, reliance on subsistence gardening so that this family has a lot of trouble uh, gardening on that land. And most troubling were her children uh, hadn't attended school when I met her uh, between the eviction in 2014 until um, 2017, uh, at which time I and another friend, a community activist, uh, began paying the school fees for her kids. Um, and Mary's bored. She's um, she's not far from town as you know for people that can drive and have a car, but the bus ride is about ten times the normal bus fare, um, and so she's struggling to uh, make a life in a place where uh, she feels very isolated uh, from from the city, even though it's, uh, as the crow flies, 10 kilometers from the center of town. Um, Mark is a craftsman. So Mark was a, a carpenter uh, and a plumber before the eviction at destination. And Mark also knew about the eviction and um, was uh, involved in a protest that landed him in jail the night of the, uh, the, the night that the community was forced to move overnight and the community was bulldozed the next day. So all of his tools were in his home when the, uh, when the community was destroyed. And because those tools were destroyed in the eviction, he's really 
struggling now to find a way to start over. Um, so he's underemployed and he's moved back to some ancestral land uh, in a flood zone uh, in Port Villa. Um, Outside, so I, I did spend a lot of time trying to track down various members of the destination community. Um, and in the process, was able to talk to a lot of people who are also not part of destination, but are part, part of other communities. Uh, and one of those uh, women was Lola, who lives in uh, another uh, community with formal tenure in Port Villa. And the interesting thing about the experience of the forced resettlement at destination is that... Um, that it seems to have sparked a, a number of um, rumors about impending dislocations around the rest of the city or fears. So Lola is not, certainly not the only person I spoke to who, who's heard rumors about uh, her uh, land or the, the land that she occupies with her community possibly being um, taken over. But the interesting thing about Lola's community is that um, uh, her chief approached me and, and told me that the that their community was going to be re, was going to be um, they were going to be resettled by the World Bank, um, and so that's unusual. Um, I, and and it took some time to convince them and and working with the World Bank to prepare some um, written documentation for the community that this was not actually what was happening that something else was going on. Um, so uh, this community is still working through some of the problems and this rumor of this impending dislocation. Um, and the community is quite divided over how they're going to handle it. Um, and particularly the women in that community are, are worried that their views are not going to be considered. Um, the community has significant assets uh, that they've prepared. Uh, that, um, such as a, a couple of ablution blocks, a couple of community centers, a school. Um, and so are really quite worried about um, how those assets would be uh, captured in any kind of compensation for relocation. Um, so the, this panel is about um, urban disaster preparedness, emergency, and recovery. And you may be asking, Jenny, why are you talking about forced dislocation uh, in, outside the context of a disaster? Um, I think that the, this, the intersection between... Um, these development issues that are occurring for people and disasters is really important. Um, the the incidents, so that even though the eviction of destination happened in 2014 before Cyclone Pam, um, the the policy that's been raised to address um, the policy that's been raised to address some of these issues of forced dislocation has occurred after Cyclone Pam and quite in the context and with the, the international attention that, that Cyclone Pam brought to the, to the islands, um, to Vanuatu in particular. So I think that that nexus between development and disaster is quite important here. Um, this is another community where I have friends and a month after Cyclone Pam in 2015, um, I visited and found that um, some of these para-urban communities had rebuilt with no shelter assistance at all. So I, I don't know if you um, notice one thing that's missing here. I asked this yesterday in a talk and I said, what's missing here? And people said, there were a lot of things that are missing, people. Um, but another thing that's missing is tarpaulins. Um, so this is a month after Cyclone Pam and people had rebuilt with, um, with no sh shelter assistance at all. Um, so the communities are quite resilient. People. 
uh, people got on with it and were doing a, the work to um, to get um, to get the community cleaned up and back on track. Um, and the reason that uh, that there hadn't been any shelter assistance up to that point uh, after Cyclone Pam was uh, I went back when I discovered this. I went back to the the shelter cluster and. Uh, um, shelter cluster coordinator at the time, who was Tom Bamforth, who was going to be here also, but wasn't able to make it today, and said, what's going on? This is this is the community Black Sands, which is here in this little, um, this area. I said, you know, what's happened? Why, why are the people in Black Sands rebuilding without any humanitarian assistance? And he said, well, the, the National Disaster Management Office has instructed us that, that um, the uh, aid distributions didn't need to happen in the para-urban areas. Um, and so, uh, because those people had access to the city. Um, I knew from other experiences that uh, this is this was described to me later as a riot, um, but I, it was a, a group of people gathering uh, with a rumor, to, to respond to a rumor that a, a shipment of tents had arrived. Um, and, uh, so um, the the nexus between um, disaster management and uh, and housing, I think, is quite strong, especially in places like Black Sands, which are growing um, much faster than the uh, national uh, population, as we saw in some of the previous presentations um, in other other settings. Um, and another issue is that aid actors and governments, I think, struggle with these ideas of permanence. So one of the things that was happening here is that uh, people were wanting to put up tents um, or wanting tents to to uh, get out of the rain. Um, another thing that I saw happen in, in Black Sands, the uh, community here, was um, people seeking to connect up to piped water infrastructure but being prevented by... Um, by the landlords um, because they didn't want symbols of permanence going up. Um, so all of these things kind of take me back to the, the national policy on climate change and disaster-induced displacement. Um, reviewing this policy, um, we have concluded that the policy makes a really common mistake of under-emphasizing development-induced displacement. So the, the kinds of displacement that happen when, when people live in one part of the city and that land suddenly becomes valuable to someone um, and uh, people need to be moved off of it. Um, so looking at some of the, the metrics of the policy, um, there are eight mentions of development-induced displacement, um, but none of them are in the 32 numbered pages of the document. So that term comes up um, in the introduction um, and in the uh, annexes, but not in the um, not in the, the the core of the document itself. Um, the we do get some uh, mention of people living in informal or para-urban settlements with insecure tenure arrangements. So there there is an explicit mention of uh, people in informal settlements um, as being covered and included by the contents of uh, of this policy, um, but. As the policy reads on, um, there's just not a lot of uh, of attention paid to the specific needs of people living in para-urban settlements and facing urban-to-urban -urban, um, displacement. 
Um, and I think that the people who are uh, crafted this policy could really be forgiven for that. Um, the World Bank's Environment Department, for instance, so um, oftentimes the um, urban infrastructure and urban de development and development-induced displacement is um, couched and, and uh, combined with other kinds of development, like this, um, uh, the World Bank's uh, Environment Department uh, talks about the number of millions of people displaced annually and lumps together dam construction, urban development, and transportation, and other infrastructure. So it's really difficult um, from an international perspective to get a, accurate um, numbers on how many people who are internally displaced in countries also are displaced within cities. Um, one thing that came out of our consultations, which was really uh, telling about this, so I managed to, there are 300 um, people living in destination in 80 households, roughly, uh, prior to the uh, the dislocation, and I managed to track down representatives from about 55, um, or about 40 of those households, so about half of them, and um, an additional 15 households who'd never lived at destination. And one thing I found uh, was that nobody had heard about this policy at all. So the, the policy document itself describes the extensive consultation that occurred in the development of the policy. Um, and People I spoke to in government and at IOM also talked about the extensive consultation processes, but there was no evidence of that in the people that I found who were actually um, displaced in perhaps one of the most horrific um, urban displacements that's ever occurred in Vanuatu. Um, and that, to me, speaks really strongly that uh, you know, if I if I were a government department looking to try to develop a good policy about forced displacement, I'd go and find the people who had suffered through one of the um, most horrific forced displacement events uh, in the country's history. And I, um, we didn't see any evidence that, uh, that people had been consulted. And in fact, um, so many people cried and, and, and said that we were the first people who'd ever come to talk to them about their experience. And that um, if they had had any acknowledgement at all from government, they would have felt a lot better about the experience. They just felt entirely abandoned um, in the policy construction process or in the in the aftermath of forcible displacement. So Margarita and I conclude um, that the new iterations of the guiding principles on internal displacement really do need to take up the issue of urban-specific advice. Um, particularly for countries like those in the Pacific, where right now um, political will is low to deal with issues of urban displacement. Um, and also the urban populations are small relative to other regions of the world. Although, you know, we do hear different estimates and, and during this conference, I think I've heard up to 50% of the region is actually living in cities. Um, but the, um, the, the capacity to deal with urban settings um, in the Pacific is uh, still um, still building. And so the in reviewing the guiding principles on internal displacement 20 years in, our recommendation is that, um, that uh, guiding principles and publications that come uh, that follow it really do need to provide urban specific advice. And I think we're seeing a lot of that um, in, in 
different kinds of advice that are coming out, but this core document on um, internal displacement could take up that mantle. Um, so, how are we doing for time? Okay. Um, so, perhaps I'll take a few questions if anybody has any, and uh, and then introduce Mohammed. What became of that land? What was the reasoning behind it? Um, it's still sitting there, Empty looking, yeah, looking, looking like this. Um, the the court documents are. Um, suggests that it's been um, leased from a, a, a landowner to a, a commercial entity for housing development. And if you walk around there, you can see little stakes. It looks like it's staked out for, um, for a subdivision. Um, but nothing's, nothing's happened yet so far. Um, so it's, it's um, and I think that's a, for, for someone like um, Millie, I think it's a, I've changed the name, so that's why I'm looking to see who's, what name I used? Um, I think it's a it's a it's a painful thing to look and see this um, community that they had built. Now these were not um, standard squatters. These were all people who believed they were moving into a um, a piece of land that it was a mixed community. Some people from Tongoa, from some some people from other islands, believed they were moving into um, a, a piece of land with a proper customary arrangement for. Um, for the long term. So they had paid money to uh, a chief, a uh, pastor, who had negotiated with the landowner. Um, and only later was the, the was there, um, uh, did the landowner sought to enter into a lease with another entity. Um, so it is a, there is a complicated legal struggle there, and, and it's not really clear um, to me, why you know, we can read the court documents, but what happened in the in the decision to revoke this community's um, presumed right to that land and and um, and uh, lease it out to someone else um, seems to be seems to have to do with you know the the uh, the desire to develop it for housing. Um, okay. Um, well, um, so uh, the next presentation is um, by my, my former student, um, Mohammed Sayer, um, who's, who's uh, now working in the Ministry of Local Government. So I'll, I'll step aside and let you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you wholeheartedly for coming in this, uh, this morning, afternoon for this uh, particular session on partnerships in urban disaster preparedness. Uh, this afternoon I'll be presenting a research paper which I had submitted as part of my Masters of Urban Planning uh, which I have uh, successfully completed last year and graduated in December uh, through the guidance uh, of my uh, uh, former supervisor, Mrs. Jenny Day. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, my research paper basically deals with uh, an aspect of disaster management which is the first stage, which, which is uh, preparedness. And I looked at uh, the, my unit of analysis was women in particular because they are the most vulnerable uh, when it comes to disasters. So I looked at the role of ethnic Fijian women uh, in disaster management planning at the community level. So it was a case study of uh, one village called uh, Nasolo village in Ba, which is the first village in Fiji to have a community-based disaster management plan in place. 
So as you you would have in a research paper, you would have a primary question. I had two other sub uh, sub research questions. So the primary research question that guided the uh, the research itself was what role did ethnic Fijian women play in the formulation and implementation of the 2012 Community Social Plan of Nasolo Village? And to supplement that question, uh, the sub research question one was: uh, Are ethnic Fijian women actively involved uh, in decision making, particularly in disaster situations? And research question number two was, to what extent uh, does the possession of traditional knowledge about the environment enable ethnic Fijian women to be valuable resources in the community? As you would do in a research paper, you will read about the subject, uh, existing theories on, around women in disaster. So as we all know or might be aware of, you might have read somewhere that women are naturally, like not naturally, but are more at risk in disaster situations because of uh, their involvement uh, in the whole process itself. They are homemakers. Uh, they're supposed to be taking care of the children and ensuring everybody's safe. Uh, there's ample food storage available during disasters. But we also know that uh, they also tend to be uh, more resilient uh, during disasters, during and after disasters, particularly in recovery stages. Because, uh, as I said before, they're homemakers and they want to. They want the safety and uh, uh, the the health and well-being of their family. There are other theories that point toward the uh, lack lack of consideration of women's contribution in disaster management planning, and other studies which uh, found that their perspectives on disaster planning, preparedness, and management processes are rarely considered, as we shall see in this uh, in this paper. Uh, what what that aspect particularly means. Uh, disasters more often than not sees uh, women take up a transformative role that does not get reported in literature. There are other points uh, which I'll highlight in my findings that relate to this. And there have been a limited number of studies uh, done that tries to understand the role that women uh, play in the disaster management uh, planning. Hence the gap in research and hence the research, research problem that I'm trying to address uh, through my research questions. Uh, in the context of the South Pacific, uh, in terms of participation in decision making, as you know, as uh, most of us or maybe some of us are aware, that in Fiji and most Pacific Island countries, uh, there are traditional roles that uh, women have to abide by, especially given that uh, they consider men to be the head of the household, even at the village level, mostly. And so, for example, if uh, they have to ensure that the man eats first before the women can eat. So in some villages, that's being practiced at the moment. But uh, in, in this modern age, day, day and age, especially in urban areas, that's not, more, not, not much prevalent, I would say. But uh, that has links to my sub-research question one on uh, decision-making and participation. Uh, possession of traditional environment knowledge. So, as you know, that disaster-stricken communities uh, need the energy and expertise of women because they are, they are the hunters and gatherers of their family. I'm referring to women in the rural areas, especially. Uh, they know the environment where the natural resources are. They go to the sea, they get the fish, uh, they collect firewood, for example. And uh, according to Lane and McNutt, uh, research has shown that women in Pacific Island communities have successfully used this knowledge, especially in terms of uh, trying to mitigate the effects of disasters uh, for generations. Uh, this is also continuing. But now, now nowadays we are more reliant on uh, teen foods, uh, <laughs> as, as you may be aware of. Uh, this has links to uh, sub-research question two, which talks about traditional knowledge. Now, in terms of the research design and scope of this paper, so this is a purely qualitative uh, research paper with an with emphasis on case study design research. And uh, basically, a case study uh, tends to generate intensive examination that creates opportunities for critical analysis. 
However, one uh, drawback of case, doing a case study is uh, you cannot generalize the whole findings for everyone. For example, if uh, all of the villages in Fiji have uh, this disaster plan, you couldn't generalize the findings for one village over the, all the others. But uh, this is accepted. Uh, we just wanted to uh, analyze uh, the findings for that particular village, which is Nasolo village. Uh, a little bit about our case study site. Uh, this Nasolo village is located in the province of Ba. If you look at the uh, Fiji map, the main island of uh, Bithilevu, highlighted in uh, blue, light blue. So it is located along the Ba river bank. So naturally it will be prone to flooding. Uh, as you can see on the top uh, right uh, corner, you see uh, the uh, years that the village had been uh, uh, badly affected due to flooding. That was in 2012 and 2009, where the houses were submerged in water. So then the Japanese government, uh, through uh, the initiative, uh, they what you call a proposal to the Fijian government to try and assist um, uh, the Fijian community in coming up with the community disaster plan through their donor agency, the JAKA donor agency. And the Bar District Office, they got together and they went down to the village and created an awareness uh, to begin with and advised the whole village that will be coming up with a disaster plan. So what they basically did was put up a uh, um, flood gauge along the river bank to monitor water levels. Uh, I was told during the research that it's not uh, operational <laughs> at, that, at that particular time. So yeah. So there were uh, three primary three, three methods uh, that were utilized for this uh, research. And the primary method was focus group. So there were two sessions done with the women of the village. Uh, so the, uh, between six to four to six women had been randomly selected. And then there were uh, snowballed, uh, snowballing technique were used over two focus group sessions to select uh, those uh, those candidates. The basic requirement was uh, that they be the, uh, the residents of the village uh, and uh, the age uh, age group in which uh, the participants were selected uh, should, have, should be between uh, 18 years to 50 plus years. This is to ensure that we have uh, all those women who took part in the formulation and dimensional plan uh, are included and those who are not included. Uh, this was done to ensure that we have a representative sample in our research. So each session uh, lasted about an hour and uh, I had the services of uh, the district of himself, Mr. Alivirithi, who assisted me in the interview. Uh, and the justification for a group, uh, focus group uh, methodology was that interviewing participants uh, individually would have taken a lot of time and uh, because I had less than a month to carry out full work. Uh, at that moment, point in time, I had some personal issues to take care of, to address while I was here on my study break. Um, but uh, luckily I managed to finish everything in time and uh, I, was, I managed to hand my paper in time. Uh, the next method that I used was semi-structured interviews, particularly uh, with the Turangini Koro or the village headman for Nasoro village. Uh, I wanted to uh, interview him because I wanted to flesh out his perceptions on uh, about uh, the participation of women in the village, both in the planning process and the decision-making process. So how does he see uh, the women, the involvement of women? Is it important to him or is it like, okay, you can just consider their views but not include them, you know, something like that. And the bar district officer, both the past and current, uh, I was told that uh, Mr. Moore, uh, the, the, the bar district officer who was in charge uh, when the the project was initiated, actually retired uh, midpoint, and then Mr. Alivirethi came and took over. 
So I didn't interview them both uh, because uh, their office played an instrument role, uh, an instrumental role in terms of facilitation of discussion between JICA and the, uh, the village themselves. So they provided important insights into the whole process of uh, coming up, uh, having discussions, having consultations uh, with the whole village and what role the women played uh, in particular. Also, this uh, provided an opportunity for me to enrich my data and uh, providing different perspectives uh, with regards to the people that were interviewed. And this was done, done in a timely manner. So the, uh, the, other, the other method was uh, document analysis. The, the written plan itself was uh, analyzed uh, to determine the prescribed roles, the written roles as you would uh, in the plan, uh, as opposed to, to the actual roles that the women play in the context of disaster management. So the actual roles uh, the women actually told me during the interviews, uh, during the focus group sessions, uh, as opposed to what's written in the plan. So then these three methods, the focus group interviews and community disaster plan was triangulated, uh, to get uh, cross verification, to ensure cross verification and validation of the data collected. And then the NVivo software was used to categorize them into themes uh, in terms of what uh, common things think that uh, the participants had said and then categorizing them. So uh, you'd be surprised with the findings. Uh, one of the key findings of the research was that the level of consultation and the construction of the plan from the perspective of the women seemed to be a formality rather than a general attempt to involve the women. How this came to be was uh, I had a copy of the plan during the uh, interview sessions and about 60% of the women had not seen the plan, the final product of the, you know, the consultations and everything. It was like new to them, you know, what is it about, uh, what's, what are the objectives? You know, people, I mean, the, the women were saying to me, said this is the, when the jackal people came, uh, what do you think they came here for, you know? Uh, oh, uh, they came, they came to do some awareness. That's the only thing we know. They came to do some awareness, but not, not to create a plan. <laughs> So this in turn, as you would, uh, as you would uh, figure out by now, would affect their enthusiasm about the plan itself and the capacity to know anything about the planning process and to be, you know, to feel connected to the plan. So when I showed them a particular section in the plan, uh, extracted from their response section, that's the only section where women are mentioned uh, at the bottom section. And <laughs> a number of women, as uh, mentioned too there, Takayawa and uh, Penea, uh, th those are not their real names. I just gave them uh, to them uh, to maintain their identity. So we're not pleased with only one section of the plan addressing uh, their roles and responsibilities. Uh, they don't. They feel that that plan did not capture the additional tasks they do, like doing the when they hear the uh, warning for disaster, like for for example a tropical cyclone. They have to tie tie down the house themselves. They have to gather the food ensure that uh, the food is stored for the next uh, couple of uh, days uh, till the cyclone passes out. So what pra one practice they do is they dig a hole in the ground and they cut the stem of the cassava crop and they bury it and they keep it for the next couple of days or maybe another three to four days maybe just to store it for after after the cyclone passes and then they have some sort of food, uh, food provision. They, they uh, pre actually prepare the, uh, what do you call the Go bag, they say, is the, the emergency bag, backpack they have. They also do that. Then I ask them, what do the men do? <laughs> if you're doing all the things, what do the men do? <laughs> so they just drink, <laughs> they just drink, uh, drink grog, you know, and then hang around here and they muck around. So I said, that's, uh, I just had nothing to say to them. So, that, so uh, the women, when, when they saw this section, they felt that the assigned roles and responsibilities were rather prescript, uh, prescriptive and not uh, representative of the actual things they do. Uh, during and after the disaster. 
for example, them doing most of the work, as I said, pre and post disaster. So then I went back to the village admin. I said, sir, how can this happen? <laughs> and they said, do you think uh, you know, involving women and believing uh, like in decision making, involving them in decision making is important? Yeah, yeah they, 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 they are very important. But then when I looked at the plan, then I saw only one section devoted to women. I said, can you see this translating the plan? They said, uh, we're not, uh, I mean, we didn't write the plan, but we you know, actually wanted the women to be in the plan. I said, okay. <laughs> and then uh, one of the, another key uh, key finding was that only one copy of the plan, the final product, was given to the village admin. So the village admin and the village admin's wife had access to that copy of the plan. While the rest of the households, about 50 of the households or so, did not have access to the plan, the final product. So this tells me uh, that uh, the discretion decision-making still rests with the men and uh, does not translate in the plan itself, the women doing most of the work. So this, also, this finding also ties in well with uh, what's happening in developing countries like Bangladesh, where women at the local level are you know, really included in decision-making, particularly in disaster situations. Now, uh, so the women felt included in the initial uh, consultation phase, and they thought they were leading the whole process, but when the, uh, they thought that the project team came to create awareness and not to formulate a plan. So maybe they were you know, confused or there were some misconceptions, misconceptions that were not cleared by the project team. That could be a possibility. And the project team did not utilize uh, the opportunity to let the community, uh, especially the women, design the plan and design on the specific, decide on the specifics themselves and the responsibilities they'll carry out. Uh, give them the ownership of the plan. They should have given the ownership of the plan, designing the plan with the specifics to them, rather than you know, dictating to them, this is uh, so-and-so, this is your... Uh, um, the roles, this is what you will do. And yeah, they could have captured, captured some traditional knowledge and practices that women do uh, during and after disasters, like the food stories that I was mentioning about digging a hole and stuff like that. So that is now also being uh, slowly lost, as the women I David also mentioned that they are now moving away from being those kind of practices that were done by the ancestors. Because now they have access to tin foods and other, other, you know, other food uh, items. So in conclusion, uh, the limited decision-making capacity of women in Nasolo village was a key factor which uh, compromised the realization of their roles and cap uh, capabilities in the plan. So their lack of influence uh, became apparent at the outset uh, and the women themselves pointed, that, uh, pointed out that they were not uh, aware of the objectives of the plan in the first place, what they were actually doing where they were not uh, aware of it. And having a small section for women, like having their roles and responsibilities just pointed out to them that you'll do this, do this is not uh, reflective of a, a proper, properly done plan. Uh, and this was uh, reflected in one of the, probably one of the most devastating uh, tropical cyclones in Fiji history uh, in 2016. And it, it really caught out uh, the women there, the whole, the whole people, all of the villages there. Luckily for them, they had uh, about 20 or 30 households on a hill. So they, they were able to, able to evacuate uh, in a timely manner. But some women were caught out uh, they couldn't evacuate in time and they had to live through the night and they gave, told me the, the experiences you know the windows all shattering up and you know the the uh, iron roofs being blown away so they were just left there they couldn't move um yeah so this this plan had a lot of a uh, lot of uh, need to improvement a lot of uh, things that need, need to be done right 
So uh, this study has tried to contribute to the field of uh, community disaster management planning. Uh, there's need to, to, to do more studies on this because there's a lack of literature that exists uh, in the South Pacific context. context. And uh, this paper proposes further research to focus on ways in which uh, community disaster planning can be improved to make it an inclusionary process. Rather than you just, uh, okay, I'll just, we'll just have you come in, just have CIA views, but not include them in the final product. Uh, particularly for vulnerable groups like women, women, children, even the elderly, their, their opinions, their voices count. Uh, this uh, research also has implications for uh, you know, partnerships, uh, what we're here to discuss this afternoon. Uh, whether it be partnerships between uh, government, uh, between governments or uh, with uh, donor agencies, it has to be done right. And there has to be ways in which uh, the consultation process, which is the first phase, has to be done right. By You can just, for example, you can just incentivize the planning process by conducting workshops and then effective consultations right at the beginning and then, you know, letting, letting it go and then following up later to see if uh, whatever, is under, whatever is produced, like plans produced, is understood or not. Some follow-up... Uh, pictures uh, for this year, uh, Tropical Cyclone Josie, as you can see, um, the whole village is submerged. Eh? This is the uh, the village that sits along the banks of the river. So the, at the rear, you, you can see the, the Bar River. You can see the, the water level. So luckily no one was injured, uh, but uh, most of their goods, uh, white goods and whatever they have in, in, the, in the house, was uh, destroyed, completely destroyed. The, all, all of them managed to evacuate uh, next next door, which is on a hill. And uh, at the moment, the Bar District Office is thinking about uh, revising the plan and also looking at uh, all the uh, the flood gauges that were installed, having them replaced and operational. At this stage, uh, I would say that, uh, from my personal opinion, they would might have to relocate to the hill for good, because. This is, <laughs> you can see, you can see like uh, this is a, a really, really dangerous area. Um, the thing is we don't have any provisions under our town planning act for disasters to come in, disaster planning. That's a submission I've made uh, to, our, to our bosses, to my bosses, sorry, uh, in relation to having a section on disaster planning in the act, uh, having, for example, having uh, the flow area to a specific height, but Having uh, this village located at the bank of the river, that wouldn't matter anyway. Yeah, so, but just having, uh, trying to relocate, that's what our ministry is doing at the moment, trying to relocate uh, vulnerable places, vulnerable villages, uh, to higher ground, to more stable ground no, for their future and stuff. Thank you very much. If you have any questions. Does anybody have any questions? interested in some insights. You're talking a lot about the process, but you've been engaging with these women, and how do they see, what would it be that would increase uh, their adaptability, their strength, and their resilience in times of crisis? So they didn't like the process, but, but where would they like the process to lead them? Right. Uh, and then I think the other interesting question is you respond to crises as a community, not as a gender, right. often, and right. I know that there are different gender right. impacts. Uh, so did the process drive wedges within the community or did it help it think as a collective on how they were going to respond uh, to the next disaster? All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so the question was, uh, what, what they, was the whole community 
engaged in the whole planning process for this plan. Yes, uh, at the initial stages they were, but uh, what I wanted to drive at uh, with this research was to look at a particular vulnerable group that hasn't been researched on in the, in the South Pacific context. So that was the general idea of trying to uh, look at women in particular, because we know that they are doing most of the work as, as has been evident in the research, but it's not being captured in literature. So what's their contribution to, to the whole process itself? We know that the, as a whole community, the whole community is involved when our planning is, uh, is done. And that was confirmed by the village headman as well, and also confirmed with the uh, Bar district officer. That everybody, uh, and that's what the Jaka, Jaka people, Jaka officials wanted as well. That everybody is included in the whole process, not just one particular gender group. But uh, my, my, my drive, my approach to it was to look at, at the contributions made by women in particular. Probably in the future, someone else might look at uh, elderly. Maybe someone might uh, you know, be more, uh, look at children, how, how children can be to the whole planning process. You know, the children who are you know, close to 18 years or maybe reaching their, their teens. You know, how do they contribute to this whole, whole process itself? So I would say it was an inclusive process, but this did, did not uh, translate in the, the written document itself. It did not uh, speak volumes, if you, if you will. Yes. And your first question was now? Can you? The substance. What did they, what was, the process failed them, yes. but it failed them in what way? What did they want to have? What are the issues that were right. missing uh, that, that were captured by that document right. that would give them resilience? Right. So what, what uh, the, most of the women had told me in the interviews was that they, they are doing most of the work. I would say, uh, they would say it was 96% out of 100. So that's not being captured in the, in the whole plan, like uh, securing the house, for example. That's not being captured. Whose, uh, the responsibility is given to the men, generally, like as you would in a, in a village setting. The mayor is supposed to do most of the work. But uh, over here, it's, just, uh, it's totally the opposite. The women are not, uh, the men are given more priority than women, I would say, uh, through this research. But uh, their rules, whatever, whatever they want to, the, to have on the plan, is not translated in the plan, like uh, them doing, you know, uh, securing the house and uh, even uh, them monitoring the gauges, the, the condition of the gauges, they were doing them themselves. And some even tried to maintain it, even though they, have, uh, they had some, some knowledge given by the Jagger team. And that was the responsibility of the men to actually maintain or try to maintain the device that they were installed. But some of the women were taking the initiative because the men were just lying along lazy and you know, drinking clock and you know, staying up late. And you know, I mean, that's, um, I have nothing to say to that, <laughs> except that uh, it's, it's something to ponder upon. You know? As men, you, they have the responsibility of, uh, you know, looking after the family, looking after the well-being of the village itself, the community. Mark had a question, and and um, and then Mitty. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, my question would be on your thoughts about uh, once all the work's been done, and there's a plan in place, and then it's given to the chief. How, how do you see that the dissemination of that plan to the community is done, and it's obviously not done because the chief hangs on to it. Short of a woman becoming chief, I can't see how that's ever going to happen unless there's a storytelling type of culture or... Right. What, how, how would you see that happening to encourage the communication of that plan and even exercise that plan? Right. I would say that, uh, I mean, uh, women, 
sometimes do become chiefs if they are born in a chief, chiefly family. They are next in line. There are, are no men uh, to lead them. But in this case, uh, the chief, uh, the chief of the village, had actually passed away a year before before I did my uh, research. So the next in line was the uh, Mr. Mosese, who was the son of the chief. They had no daughters. So uh, naturally, I, would, I don't know what will happen in the chiefly status after Mr. Mosese. Uh, but even, even the chief, chief's wife had some influence uh, on the plan because she tried to integrate the contributions made by women uh, to some extent through her influence as being a chief, uh, chief's wife. She actually mentioned that she tried to, you know, um, try to tell her husband that, okay, involve more women, look at their views, because they are doing most of the work. And because the chief, I mean, he was like, he didn't want to face the men of the village. He was like, even though he was the chief, he didn't want to face them. Like, hey, you know, doing the work. He was not, I mean, I think he was too, too humble to say, because the men should realize their, their work, uh, what they have to do uh, in the village setting. But uh, for women, I would say that they had some influence with the chief's wife. But uh, in the future, uh, I'm not sure how this is going to translate. Because there are no uh, women next in line to be chief. Yeah, or village headmen, or women. Yeah. Thank you, Mohamed. Um, just a, a comment. Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the presentation. Uh, my, I believe uh, in Fiji, yes. the role of women in disaster management planning, it, it's, uh, it's, it's very, really varies from, from different villages. Right? And uh, in, in the urban, centi- urban settings, I think the role of women is it's really improving mm. because of the, in, in terms of the level of education right. and the, and the position, different position that uh, the, 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 the women have been, uh, so their contribution to this uh, planning is it's really improving over the years. Eh? But in the rural setting, uh, I believe it's like uh, they they do contribute in such a way, but it's just not recognized yes. uh, or, or well documented in such a plan like this. Eh? Uh, for example, uh, some most of their their contribution it's, it just comes through the head of the family, mm. and that head of the family through these village meetings they are contributing the both the, the ideas from the from the from the wife and from the families. So, because of the traditional role of these ladies to to you know just to to sit back and just uh, concentrate on the on the family yeah. uh, obligation and, and their traditional roles, eh? so that, that's probably uh, some the channel that uh, they contribute indirectly uh, through this uh, uh, plan. Eh? So, it's, but it's uh, the, I think the only challenge part is not uh, documented uh, and reflected in the in the plan, but it's from. The the, uh, the household head yes the contribution from the household because they they probably discuss the their contribution uh, from a family level and then they contribute that in the in the building segment during the, the gathering yeah? right. that that's probably uh, how they contributed but I think the only challenge that it's not reflected directly yes. in, the, in the in the overall uh, disaster management plan. so traditional obligations uh, are something that cannot be bypassed um, for any particular reason. As Amiti would uh, agree with me, uh, I've been to the village, and uh, they are very, very kind and humble people, and they respect uh, the head of the family, the women especially, and uh, they cannot give, go against the will of the men. So whatever contributions they would wish to make, as Amiti said later, will go through the men, and they'll make the submission to the village headmen. 
accordingly. Because the women, uh, because of the status of the village headman, the women cannot speak directly to them, to him. So it has to be relayed through the men to them. But uh, from the from this study, uh, the men, uh, <laughs> no offense, Mithi, the men uh, actually do not, uh, you know, wish to take that up with the village headman. Those kind of issues that they are facing, and those kind of things that they need needed to be in the plan is not, you know, reflected. It's like it's put under the carpet uh, from some men because of their attitude. Maybe I, I wouldn't know uh, some personal issues there. I, and I think that the the, the oh, maybe I should take this the, the two talks um, you know I, I in, to, at very much to a very large extent you know from our academic positions Muhammad is is now also in a government expert position but it, from an academic position we sort of hand this back to the practitioners and say you know well we set out to find out that whether or not there was a focus on process or a focus on product um, or a focus on outcomes in some of these public processes. And I think that, you know, our study on um, destination found that the, the focus appeared to be on getting this policy document um, assembled and, um, and not on public consultation. Um, and the, the focus of the, uh, the you know, my, my interviewee, Millie, um, didn't, when she was not consulted about a, a, a relocation that was happening that day, or when she had not even known that this was about to happen, clearly there were information gaps between leadership in the community and in Muhammad's findings um, that, that somehow the women in this community didn't even know that they were being consulted about a, um, a, a plan that they were then tasked to carry out. Um, and had never seen it. Um, so the point we're trying to make, I think, is is that there's um, there are gaps between the the way that agencies and organizations um, put these things together and strategize them and and the way that they get translated to communities. So in some ways, then we say, um, so what do we do? we don't we don't know. Uh, part of our role as researchers is to uncover some of these things. Um, some researchers then can take the next step and say, well, what does actually work in terms of community consultation? What would produce 100% of the women in that study knowing about the plan and knowing what to do and buying into it and being convinced that it's the right thing to do um, in, the, in the moment of emergency? So I think that would be a next step for the research community to take up or the policy community. Um, I think we would stop short of having any prescriptions for that because we haven't researched it and don't know um, what's going to work in these circumstances. Um, and, oh, Mark? Another line, I've worked around the world <clears throat> as an engineer. I've worked around the world doing shelter and uh, I come across this all the time and, and when I've built camps in various parts of the world, emergency, uh, emergency camps, Community engagement is the first thing I go on about, uh, talking to the host uh, government in the region about the land they're going to give us to build and that. And then I start talking to the, uh, the communities and some way I always manage to get to talk to the women, either directly or indirectly, depending on how appropriate it is, but I get their view. But 
And then I have what they're trying to do. But yeah. I think the problem here and in many, many places, and even in Australia, in, where, where we do emergency management plans throughout rural Australia, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's not an easy process. But the trick is, it's easier to get a plan in place. The thing is, once it's in place, to educate everyone and communicate that plan, and if you can, you know, uh, run simultaneous exercise if you that advanced and that, to get everyone to buy into it. People will buy, I find people will buy into constructing a plan, but once the plan's in place and you have to know that everyone's confident and bought into it so it works in the event of a disaster. And that's the challenge, I think. It's, it's getting community buy-in once the plan's in place. Yes, I think the implementation bit is uh, tricky. Uh, how do you get to implement a plan which you've constructed? Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, what was your experience like when in trying to trying to pull your plans through, like making them understand? What are some of the challenges you faced? Always try and get to the end result. So what are we trying to achieve? And then try and work out in a, a human way how to engage people. Mm -hmm. So what's the benefit? What, where, where's their benefits? And then even to the point of trying to make it fun. I know that sounds weird, but you've got to bring humour and, and engagement and empathy and everything into what you're trying to do. So people buy into what you're trying to, right. to achieve. And, that is a challenge and, a, and it's a skill set and it's taken a long time to develop that by talking to lots of different communities and cultures and things like that. But I don't think there's any easy way, but mm. I mean, you could almost write a master's on that sort of thing again, <laughs> easily, or a, a doctorate, I reckon. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't Do you, know. Uh, in your experience, have you carried out a social impact assessment? Uh, well, these are emergency <laughs> camps, so yeah. <laughs> ad hoc ones, yeah. as we're building and as we're looking at people who are, you know, in terrible land and yeah. tents and then when it floods, they're still in tents and it's flooded. Right. But yeah, then I've built new camps in other places and yeah, it's just engagement. It's, it's, you know, the way I look at it is, would I live here? Mm. That's how I look at it. That's how I try and build things. Would I live here if I had to? And then some of these camps have gone on to become villages, like they're temporary camps, They've been temporary for about 10 years. Oh. So, but they've developed into villages because you put a bit of thought into how you build it and things like that. Right. Yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know, I'm an engaging person. I love uh, engaging with people inclusive. So if I have an idea, I'll run it past the whole room to see if anyone's got a better idea or want to contribute it. So you've got to have people like that who's trying to drive it for right. if If you don't have people like yourselves or a us doing that, then you're never going to achieve it. I think um, we uh, maybe we'll just uh, wrap up a few minutes early and give people a chance to collect their thoughts before the uh, reception starts at 5.30. I think we're meant to wrap up at 5 anyway. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mohammed. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see you at the, at the cocktails.
You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.